Welcome to the Global Medical Device Podcast, where today's brightest minds in the medical device industry go to get their most useful and actionable insider knowledge, direct from some of the world's leading medical device experts and companies. What is regulatory due diligence and why does it matter to you? And how does it differ from regulatory strategy and regulatory pathway? Well, look for all of these areas and, and more on this episode of the Global Medical Device Podcast. Hello and welcome to the Global Medical Device Podcast. This is your host, the founder and VP of Quality and Regulatory at Greenlight Guru, John Spear. And uh, I hope first and foremost, I hope you all are doing well. I know we're all getting used to this as a new, hopefully temporary normal, but nonetheless, we're excited to continue to bring wonderful comments and feedback and content and information to, to help you continue to push the ball forward uh, and improve in the quality of life with the products and technologies that you all are, are developing. So thank you for being a loyal listener. But let's get into a topic today. And the topic that I, I want to explore is this this concept of regulatory due diligence. And, you know, of course, who better to talk about regulatory due diligence or, frankly, all things regulatory than my good friend and frequent voice on the Global Medical Device Podcast, Mike Drews with Vascular Sciences. So, Mike, welcome. Thank you, John. Always a pleasure to speak with you and our audience. So, I have to imagine that you uh, do a fair amount of work with respect to regulatory due diligence. And I guess before we get to that, it might be good to give, as we often do, give folks a little bit of context as to what regulatory due diligence means. So do you want to give it, a, give it a stab? Yeah, great question, John. And as always, thanks for the opportunity to, to talk with you and your audience about this topic. So regulatory due diligence obviously is an important part of any regulatory engagement that I'm involved with. It usually begins at the beginning, uh, but then continues through the process. And in a nutshell, here's how what I think of regulatory due diligence, John, and I would love to hear your perspective on it as well. But basically, it's looking at what's been done thus far. In other words, if a company is developing a device that's similar to another device already on the market or other devices on the market, then obviously, regulatory due diligence would involve looking at how those other devices were brought to market, both in terms of regulatory pathway. In other words, were they 510Ks or de novos? Were there PMAs or HDEs or what have you? But also, not just the regulatory pathway, but all of the additional things that go along with it. Like, for example, did they need to do a clinical trial? And if so, how big? And what were the endpoints and the inclusion and exclusion criteria and so on? What on the engineering side, on the product development side, you know, what kind of testing did they have to do? It could be usability testing. It could be electrical safety testing. It could be biocompatibility testing. Uh, so all of that goes under regulatory due diligence for existing devices. What I think is particularly interesting, John, and one of the reasons why I think this would be a, a good discussion today is how do you do regulatory due diligence for a brand new novel device that's not similar to something that's already on the market, where there is no existing path to follow. And I suspect maybe we can get to that in uh, a little bit later in our conversation. But that's sort of, yeah. uh, you know, broadly speaking to me, what regulatory due diligence is. What am I forgetting, John? What would you add to that list? Well, I don't know if you're forgetting anything, but, you know, the, I guess when I hear the word 
uh, words due diligence, I, I'm almost automatically drawn to some sort of investor type of of conversation or topic, and and I think it can certainly include that perspective as well, like kind of knowing the the state of affairs, so to speak, from a regulatory perspective before I, I dive too deep and invest too much time, money, effort, and resources. And I, I, to me, I, th- I think when I, I guess this might be an oversimplification of, of regulatory due diligence, but it's really, uh, the way I think about it, is really understanding the, the current landscape situation and circumstances that, that impact uh, that product from a from a, I guess to be, hopefully not uh, too generic here, but but from a regulatory point of view, you know how are regulatory agencies and bodies going to view and and evaluate my product from that perspective? So I think John, now you're getting to the question of why is regulatory due diligence important, and it's important for several reasons, including you know the one that you just started with, and that is from an investor or a business perspective. If we're in a small company that's trying to raise money from VCs or angels, or if we're working in a larger company where you need to get uh, you know the buy-in from the the senior management to devote the resources to pursuing this project, certainly we need to be able to to have an idea of what's involved on the regulatory side. So that would be all the sort of the business reasons why regulatory due diligence is important. Another reason why regulatory due diligence is important is from a regulatory perspective, right? So we need to be able to to know what our pathway to market is, is 510K, de novo, PMA, what have you. We need to be able to plan, for example, does it make sense to do a pre-submission meeting or a pre-sub, as you and I have talked about many times. That's usually what I recommend for most medical devices. We need to have an idea of what our timeline is. Uh, in order to get our product onto the market from a regulatory perspective, as a general rule, de novos take a little bit more time than a 510K. On average, I usually figure about three to four, maybe six months uh, for longer for a de novo than, uh, than a 510K. Certainly, when it comes to PMAs, that can be you know a longer timeline than that. We have to know what the user fees are. You know, the user fees for 510Ks are very, very minimal. The user fees for the de novo are an order of magnitude higher. And for PMAs, they're they're even higher than that. Although the first the PMA that a company does the user free is, is zero. That's an incentive that Congress created for more companies to develop class three devices. So regulatory purposes is an obvious reason why regulatory due diligence is important. And then the third reason why I think regulatory due diligence is important, and again, I'd love to hear your thoughts on this, John, and that is from an engineering or a product development perspective. In other words, when we're developing our device and when we're testing our device, what do we anticipate FDA wanting to see in terms of type of tests? I mentioned earlier, you know, anecdotally, biocomp, usability, electrical safety, there are a litany of different kinds of tests. So the R&D folks need to know that what those tests are to make sure that when the R&D engineers, you know, get to the finish line, that's the same time that the regulatory folks get to the finish line. That jives with our commercialization strategy of when the company wants to start marketing the device and so on and so on. So just to recap, regulatory due diligence is important from an investor or business perspective. It's important from a regulatory perspective. It's important from an engineering or product development perspective. Once again, John, I ask you, what am I forgetting or what would you add to that list? 
Well, I mean, respond with a, a question. I mean, there's a couple of thoughts that come to mind. The first thought is, as you were explaining that, I mean, it seemed like to me, or at least what I'm hearing is that there's a strong relationship or correlation between regulatory due diligence and, and a regulatory strategy. How, maybe if you don't mind, I mean, how are they the same? How are they different? Do you have any thoughts on that? Yeah, it's a great question. So let's differentiate between three phrases, regulatory due diligence versus what, which is what we're talking about today versus what you just mentioned, regulatory strategy, and then finally, uh, regulatory pathway to market. So sometimes people use these phrases synonymously, but they're really not. Regulatory pathway to market is just simply the the regulatory pathway that you anticipate taking for your medical device. Like I said, 510K, de novo, PMA, HDE, what have you. But regulatory pathway is not the same as regulatory strategy. the, The regulatory pathway is one of the things that you end up with as your regulatory strategy, but your regulatory strategy might involve many different potential pathways. In other words, as you and I have talked about before, John, for any given medical device, I might be able to bring that medical device onto the market under the wellness exemption as a class one exempt device, as a class two 510K, as a class two de novo, and in some, albeit extreme cases, class three PMA or a class three HDE. So regulatory strategy would include all of those different options and the advantages and disadvantages to each. The regulatory pathway would be sort of the one that you end up with. And finally, let's come back to the, 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 the topic of today's discussion, and that is regulatory due diligence. The regulatory due diligence is sort of what starts to form the basis, what feeds into beginning the regulatory strategy, because I don't know about you, John, but I couldn't even imagine starting to put together a regulatory strategy and ultimately a regulatory pathway to market without doing that due diligence first. To me, that's just you know common sense. No, and I appreciate you explaining the d- distinctions between those three terms because I, I do agree. I think a lot of folks do sort of blend these things together as all one in the same vein. And, and it's, it's, I thank you for elaborating on that. The other thing that you said toward the beginning of our conversation today that triggered a thought that honestly I hadn't thought about, I always, I guess when I think about regulatory due diligence, I guess I look at it more from a quote new, a new product that I'm developing as being applicable or important. And it certainly is. But you said something about regulatory due diligence could be applied or a discipline that we can engage in for existing products. And I hadn't thought about it like that before. Can you maybe elaborate on how regulatory due diligence could, could be applicable to you know, a product that, or, or a set of products that I've, I've had on the market for at a number of different markets for a number of years? How, how would that play in from a due diligence perspective? So absolutely, John. Thanks for asking the question. So regulatory due diligence, I think, is important for any medical device, whether it's a an existing device that's similar to something already, or as we can talk about in a moment, you know, if it's a new or novel device. But specifically, when it comes to existing devices, regulatory due diligence is going to provide the background to help us determine if, for example, we want to do a later expansion, if we have a device that's already on the market, let's say it's on the market as a class 2 510K, and we want to make a change to that particular product, uh, maybe a change in the design, maybe a change in the, in the labeling, 
the due diligence will help us determine if it's a change that we can handle internally via a letter to file, or if it's a change that would require notifying the FDA via a special 510K or a PMA supplement. And for the benefit of our audience, John, you and I have done previous discussions and I've done some webinars for Greenlight on change management. So I don't want to get too far down that rabbit hole. But keep in mind that just because you do the due diligence and let's say that everybody before you has handled this via a 510K doesn't necessarily mean that you have to do it as a 510K. In other words, you might decide that making this change to your labeling, to your indications, for example, would be better handled as a de novo. So, and and again, for the benefit of our audience, we've talked many times about the differences between the 510K and the de novo, and I've done webinars for Greenlight on both of those topics as well. So I don't want to get into too much of the, the details there, but the point that I'm trying to make is regulatory due diligence will allow us to be aware of, to find out what people have done in the past. However, just because some people did something in the past a certain way doesn't necessarily mean that we have to do it that way in the future. We can do it that way in the future if it's to our advantage, but if it's to our advantage to take a different path, John, then as you know, know, I'm the first one to, to do that. Does that make sense? It, it totally does. And and I can also imagine that regulatory due diligence could be applicable. I mean, sometimes it doesn't happen a ton of times, but uh, sometimes FDA may update how products are classified or there might be some some new criteria in the EU as far as product classifications. It seems like the practice of regulatory due diligence would be applicable in those scenarios as well. I would agree. And actually, here's a suggestion for, for you and our, our audience, John, based on that. I know, obviously, you're a guru when it comes to, to quality and, and, and quality management systems. I said at the beginning, regulatory due diligence should not be limited just to being done at the beginning of a new project. I think just like a risk management plan, it's supposed to be sort of touched on periodically, probably not every day, but right. periodically through the entire product life cycle. So what I would suggest perhaps is companies consider putting some sort of a, um, I don't want to use the word requirement, John, but some sort of a reminder within their QMS to periodically revisit, redo some, update their regulatory due diligence, maybe once a year, maybe twice a year, maybe once a quarter, depends on the product, just to make sure that from a regulatory perspective, that they're that they know what the current thinking is. I can't tell you, for example, John, how many companies that I that I uh, contact me that are working in a particular area that have had uh, a product on the market or multiple products on the market for a while, and they're not aware of a new guidance document, for example, that FDA just released that potentially has a direct impact to them. Yeah. And so I think that is, in my opinion, John, that's inexcusable. And so part of that regulatory due diligence process, this goes back to what we talked about earlier when it comes to the engineering and the product development ramifications, is to make sure that we come up with what's going on in the FDA in terms of uh, guidance, what's going on in terms of the literature. You know, this is sort of, you know, touches on post-market surveillance. And what's going on in terms of complaints, just, you know, if we have a 510K device, for example, we might not get complaints about our device, but there might be complaints about a similar device, maybe even our predicate device. Do we have an obligation to investigate those complaints to see if if those problems could possibly 
really impact us. I think, uh, you know, those are all, you know, part of our responsibility as being, you know, diligent uh, uh, medical device professionals. So, so bottom line, John, I think that uh, the phrase regulatory due diligence in my book is a very, very broad phrase. As a, as a quality guy, John, I would love to hear your thoughts on putting such reminders, if you want to use that word, into the company's QMS. Do you think it's a good idea? Do you think it's a bad idea? What are your thoughts? Well, I guess first, I think it, it is a good idea. And uh, I guess reaction to your other comments, and, and I'll pull in some other areas. I think a lot of times companies treat so much of their their business from a medical device product perspective as almost like static moments in time. You know, even the, and maybe we don't, maybe it's an antiquated term um, from decades ago, but even the term like design history file, uh, I think a lot of times what the practice, the prevailing practice, unfortunately, is that um, people do treat it just like that. It's it's a history file. And once they launch the product, then they archive the DHF and it's never to be seen again. Uh, I think in, you know, current times that uh, we're in a total product lifecycle perspective. And you and I have talked a, a ton about uh, design changes. And to your earlier points, we have webinars. We've done podcasts on this topic. So folks, go check those things out. They're all available anytime, all the time. So just uh, just confirm that. And I guess from risk management is another one of those areas where there's a, a ton of information that people consume and, and compile and take care of, but they do so at a one-and-done perspective. That also should be a life cycle thing. And now, you know, we've got this other thing, regulatory, uh, that that's also should be a total product life cycle perspective. It shouldn't be a, a static moment in time, set it and forget it and forget about it. Because we're in a world, I think, especially, you know, you and I have talked about uh, risk and in, in, in the past and regulatory compliance in the past, of course. And we've talked a, a fair amount about legal ramifications and and that sort of thing you know, you know as a, a med device company i mean i have an obligation to make sure that the information about my product from a design from a risk from a manufacturing from a regulatory and so on that that's up to date and current with the latest greatest expectations and, and that sort of thing so yeah I, I think it would be i guess that was a long way to say yes i think it would be a good idea to trigger some sort of reminder within your quality system. I mean, I would liken it almost to like a, a calibration certificate or a supplier monitoring initiative or something along, along those lines. Well, I think, John, and very well said, by the way, I think uh, you're illustrating regrettably one of the one of the problems in our industry, and that is we usually take a, a retrospective approach as opposed to a prospective or, you know, being reactive as opposed to being proactive. And you use some great examples, you know, when it comes to risk management, we're looking usually at risks that we've already experienced or connect or, or have seen, but what about, you know, risks that haven't happened yet? You mentioned the design history file, the DHF. Well, why the heck do we limit it to the history of the device? Why don't we make that more uh, inclusive? And I can't think of the, the, the best name right now, but something you know to address not just what we've done in the past, i.e. the history, but what we plan to do in the future, You know, more like what you use the phrase product life cycle kind of a thing. And then, of course, my favorite example, which usually, which you and I have talked about in the past, and that is the Kappa. 
the corrective action and preventative action. Why the heck do we call it the Kappa? Why don't instead we call it the PACA? Because the emphasis should be on prevention, not correction. You know, so we we should call it, you know, the the preventative action, corrective action. So these are all, regrettably, I think, illustrations of how, as an industry, we tend to focus on the past rather than the future. And I don't know about you or or other folks in our audience, John, but I think that's kind of problematic. Totally. I mean, it, I realize changing our <laughs> regulations is literally an act of Congress uh, in some circumstances, or many parliaments have to agree. So the, the likelihood that, that some of these terms get updated uh, to reflect current times is, is probably, um, I don't know if that's a, a realistic expectation, but I, but I do agree. Um, we have to adapt and evolve with the times. And, you know, and frankly, it's... Um, just good business practice. I mean, I, I should I should be to your point. Even today, so many companies are so reactive and they're waiting for things to happen. And you know, that's that's a. I've been in those situations. It it is not fun as a medical device professional to have to correct something um, that you found out about after it happened. I mean, it's so much better of a situation to to be proactive um, for sure. So. You know, I hate to use the cliche, John, but I think it's apropos here. Uh, and that is, you know, an ounce of prevention is worth a pound of cure. And uh, there are other similar cliches as well, but I think that applies. So let's talk about another challenge, which I think Absolutely. is a much more interesting topic of discussion when it comes to, redo, to, to regulatory due diligence. Thus far, we've been focusing on regulatory due diligence for existing devices. And what I mean is if we have a device that we're bringing onto the market as a 510K, it's going to be similar to this predicate device and so on. But when it comes to doing regulatory due diligence for a truly new or novel product, a product where there is no predicate, for example, if we're doing a de novo instead of a 510K, or a product for a PMA where there's nothing like it on the market before, what does regulatory due diligence mean in that context? Well, most people would say, well, gee, it's impossible to do regulatory due diligence on uh, that kind of a product because... Nobody's done it before. Well, to me, that's a cop-out. I mean, that's that's ridiculous, right? So I love doing regulatory due diligence on totally new, totally novel top-out projects on, on devices and technologies. And in a nutshell, here's how I do it. Although this new technology might be new, when I look at that technology from an engineering perspective, more often than not, it's simply a combination of existing technologies that have been put together in a new way. And so what I first do in those scenarios is, is I decouple the technologies. In other words, I deconstruct the device into its component parts, into its different core technologies, if you will. And I say, okay, there might not be uh, an existing device on the market that has all of these technologies in, in together, but there are devices that include these technologies in, in, in them. And so what I do is I take a look at the testing that they've done for those different technologies. And I start to use that to build my testing matrix. I looked at the, I look at the risk mitigation strategies that they've used. Uh, and I start to incorporate those into uh, my, my risk mitigation strategy for my, for my new device. 
And so at the end of the day, John, I take all of this information and I bring it to the FDA and I've done this many times. It's pretty sub. And I say, here's our new device. And as you can imagine, John, FDA is inherently afraid of totally new, totally novel technologies. So I say, here's our new device. There's no other device on the market like it. Therefore, we're the first ones. However, when you look at it a little more closely, when you think about it, it's really not new. All it is is a combination of kind of old things that are put together in a new way. And I decouple those old things and I talk about each of those existing things individually. And then I put them together. And the reason why this is such a valuable use of regulatory due diligence for new devices, John, and again, I would love to hear your thoughts on on this strategy, is because it makes it much easier for FDA to swallow that proverbial pill. Because once again, FDA, and this is not a criticism, on the contrary, this is FDA doing their job. They are inherently, maybe afraid is not the right word, but they are inherently concerned about totally new, totally novel things. Right. And that's exactly what their what their job is, is, is supposed to be. But if I can position it to them, if I can present it to them, well, gee, on one hand, this is new. But on the other hand, it's really not new. I don't know if I'm explaining that very well, John. Do you, do you understand where I'm going with that? Uh, yeah, I do. And I'll try to connect some dots from the point that you made a little bit earlier. You know, just and I, I guess I'll make a statement first. The I remember when I started my career as a product development engineer, that company, and I, I think it was pretty similar in a lot of companies, frankly, and it may sadly still be the case today, but there were the functional silos, if you will, where you know I'm an engineer, focus on engineering, the regulatory people, the focus on the regulatory, the quality, focus on the regulatory, and so on and so forth. I think those days are gone, or they should be, you know, and I'll use the product development engineer as, as a good example. I have to be knowledgeable, not so much so that I'm necessarily preparing uh, regulatory due diligence information or so much so that I'm crafting a regulatory strategy or even a regulatory pathway submission, but I should be knowledgeable about regulatory from a due diligence perspective uh, as part of my, um, frankly, my responsibility uh, in that capacity because, um, you know, especially for new product development, because I have to understand, if you will, the, the, the prior art that exists and how it applies and doesn't apply or how it's similar. And, you know, if there's information that I can leverage uh, to support our development efforts, that's going to help our case, if you will, um, from a regulatory due diligence standpoint as well. So I have to, I have to be really a partner with, with my regulatory team um, from a product development standpoint, and that goes for any other discipline that's involved with with new product development. Does that help connect some dots, maybe? I, I do, and I I agree with you 100 percent, John. Um, but regrettably, at least in my experience, those days are not gone. At least not completely, because I still get calls from companies who basically say, we want you to help us with our regulatory submission. Our R&D engineers will give you all of the information. Will you please just copy and paste this into whatever form is necessary and send it to the FDA? And in those cases, John, I'm very, very adamant. I say to them, find yourself a new regulatory consultant yeah. because that is not the way 
way that I work. I know that is the way that a lot of regulatory folks work, and if they chose to do that, that's that's up to them. But that is not the way I work for a lot of reasons, not the least of which is, in addition to become being a regulatory uh, consultant, I am a biomedical engineer. I am a you know a former R and D engineer, and I think there's you know you you remember John the old days of you know throwing things over the wall between R and D to 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 manufacturing. Well, regrettably, you know that still happens between you know from R and D to, to regulatory, and I don't think that's the way this game is supposed to be played. At least not in my opinion. I don't, I don't think so either. Um, and you know, there's a couple of points in time in, in my past. Fortunately, early in my career, uh, the the one company that I w- was doing some product development work with, um, I have to credit my my boss at that time. Uh, so I, I'm going to name him because he, he was very uh, he he helped me understand this. I don't, and I believe it was intentional. But Bruce Jingles, if you're listening, thank you because what what he did is he he assembled a cross functional team. Uh, that included engineering, it included uh, sales and marketing, and our product development engineers also had the responsibility of being the manufacturing engineers too. And I didn't realize this the, the first project or two that, that I was involved with uh, until one day the manufacturing uh, people came down and said, hey, these instructions that you wrote, they're crap. I can't follow them. Uh, I don't know, understand <laughs> that. So I, I uh, le- like I said, learned the hard way. I had to go troubleshoot and, and resolve and fix that. But but I think the more we can, not necessarily, I think we have to be willing to to walk in other people's or other functional area shoes and understand their perspective. But I, I do agree with you. I, I know I, I bring a, a fair amount of optimism to, to these conversations sometimes. I, I guess my hope is for you listening, folks, take a cross-functional approach to this. Understand what the other roles and functional areas, what they're dealing with, and and do your part to make life a little bit easier for you and for them all the way around because it's going to be a better experience, I assure you. Well, once again, John, I couldn't agree more. But on the other hand, you know, as we've you know, learn in politics over and over again, you know, those yeah. words are easy to say, talk yeah. is cheap. You know, what happens in reality, you know, I don't live in the theoretical world that some people live in, apparently. I live in the real world. Yeah, <laughs> but, I know. So, listen, we've, we've talked a lot about regulatory due diligence. The last question that I wanted to throw to you, John, to, and then we can kind of wrap this up is, you know, regulatory due diligence obviously is a phrase that's commonly used. I can't take credit for it. But what I would like to ask you is, is there such a thing as quality due diligence? As far as I know, John, I've not heard that phrase used before. Perhaps it has. But is there such a thing as quality due diligence? And as a quality you know, expert yourself, how would you define quality due diligence and why would it be important to our audience to understand? Yeah, it's that is a thought-provoking question. And, I, and I'm not aware of of that term in uh, wide use either. I think the, the short answer is, yeah, there needs to be. And I guess I'll look at it from a couple of different perspectives. I'll start with like the the new, the the, the startup that may be venturing into this for, for the first time. Um, quality due diligence is, is pretty important there. And and I guess I'll explain it by, with a, a short example. Um, there, there are a fair amount of times that, that I'll get a phone call and an email that says, oh, we just got our 510K clearance or CE mark, whatever the case may be, or, you know, we've already done all of these things. What do I need to do about my quality system? And uh, what are these things called design controls? And what should I be doing from a risk standpoint? And like, oh, that's just, that I put the, the palm of my hand to my forehead when I get these things. 
Um, <laughs> because um, th- that tells me when people ask those types of questions, it's like, okay, they they didn't give quality the attention that it really deserves through the process. I mean, keep in mind, folks, again, we're, I know that you've probably heard me say this before and uh, heads up, I'm going to say it again. We're making medical devices and the medical devices that we're making are intended to be used on patients to improve their quality of life, in some cases, save their lives. So quality has to be at the center of that universe and frankly, in everything that we do. And you know, sadly, I, I think a lot of people kind of give it the short change or they think of it as cliche or an obstacle or an impediment. And you know, for, for folks that have that mindset, please tell me that if that's the way you view it so that I can alert my friends, family, and loved ones uh, about the products you're developing because <laughs> I don't want those products used on anybody that I love and care about. Amen. You know, so yeah, I think there is something there. And when, when I think about quality due diligence, I don't just think about the quote quality system. Yeah, that's important, I suppose. But it's really more about, okay, well, how did how do we make decisions uh, for this product? How do we demonstrate that it's safe? How, how do we know that it's going to be effective? How are we being proactive with this product once it gets into the marketplace uh, to continually evolve and update and, and revise this product so that it continues to meet and exceed the, the needs of the end user? Yeah, I think there's a place for it. Well, just to add a little bit to what you just said, John, and I think you know you, you captured a lot of very good, uh, uh, important points there. Quality due diligence, to me, is very similar to regulatory due diligence, and that is, it starts out with what's been done in the past, at looking at the current requirements. So, yeah. for example, what is necessary to go into a, a quality management system, and so on and so on. However, Unfortunately, sometimes that, how do I say this, John? Sometimes people take the easy approach. What I mean by that is that copy and paste kind of approach. To me, John, and I will not proclaim to be nearly as an expert on the quality side as you are, but to me, having a QMS, even if it meets all of the quote-unquote regulatory requirements, having a QMS that is a to date myself here, a carbon copy of some other company's QMS defeats the entire purpose of having a quality management system. That is not what a QMS is supposed to be. And I'll give you a real quick example from my world, John, and I'm sure you probably have lots more similar examples. I was asked several months ago to come in and to take a look at a company's quality management system. I don't market myself as an auditor per se, but I do have a lot of experience uh, in giving companies uh, advice, you know, improving their QMS, not simply to meet the regulatory requirements, but to make sure that they're doing the right things to make sure that, that they don't have problems with product liability and so on in the future. So a few months ago, I was evaluating a company's QMS and I noticed that they had examples of uh, SOPs for devices that the company did not even make themselves. Now, to me, John, if there's if, if that's not the quintessential example of copying and pasting from somebody else's QMS into theirs, and oh, by the way, they hired somebody, it was not Greenlight, but they hired somebody to put together their QMS. If that's not the quintessential example of copy and paste, and if it's also not the quintessential example of the people in the company not even knowing what is in their own QMS because they didn't know those examples were there. 
You understand where I'm going. Yeah, I do. It's it's all too common, sadly. I mean, and and I I agree. I mean, I, I think it's important, folks, that you don't necessarily have to, you're, I'll give you my take on it. I don't think your quality management system and, and the procedures that, that make it up have to be completely blank sheets of paper, original works of art. I think you can start have something, a template or some, some starting point. But if you don't uh, adapt that and revise that and, and make it your own and make sure that you and, and all of your colleagues within your company understand the, the premise and, and the intent behind it, then you're doing yourself and no favors. Uh, you're doing yourself a disservice. You're just checking a box to say, yep, we're quote compliant. But yeah, you should, a quality system should adapt in, in, in a way that aligns with who and what that company is and where they are in their journey. And, and it should you know, reflect their culture and their perspectives and their approach. I, I suppose, Mike, that those, those uh, examples that you and I cite where people just copied and pasted and dropped in a set of procedures, I suppose that probably does say a lot about their quality culture. They, they probably don't really put a lot of emphasis on it. Or, put, or to be a little bit more blunt, John, what is the point if a company has their QMS sitting on a shelf in a three-ring binder or in a computer somewhere no that nobody ever refers to and that nobody even knows what the heck is in it? What's the point of having it? Isn't it just a colossal waste of time and money? Yeah, and if folks, if you're going to do that, save yourself money. Don't hire, don't hire Greenlight, and don't hire a consultant. Don't call me or Mike if, if that's <laughs> what you want to do because you're going to just be wasting your time and money. Well, I wouldn't go quite that far, John. What I would still say <laughs> is have them call us, but let us give us the opportunity to explain yeah. why what that might that that might be the best approach and what the ramifications might be if you do choose to use that approach. <laughs> all right, touche, good point. Um, all right, so I feel like we covered a fair amount of ground on on the the due diligence topic. I, thank you for asking about uh, my perspectives on quality due diligence. But I, I guess to kind of wrap things up today, uh, what what are the key takeaway or takeaways that that are important for folks listening to to lead with? So great, well, great way to end, John. And again, thanks for the opportunity to have this discussion. So regulatory due diligence and also quality due diligence is starts out by looking at what's been done in the past, by what the requirements are and so on. But there are a couple of caveats to keep in mind. One is that just because something has been done a certain way in the past doesn't necessarily mean that it's applicable for the future or it's certainly not the only option for the future. And also keep in mind that uh, both regulatory as well as quality due diligence is very useful in understanding how we got to where we are today. But it's also extremely useful as we talked about earlier, John, when it comes to applying due diligence to truly new or novel products. It gives us an opportunity to make intelligent arguments as to uh, where to go in the future. In other words, I'm not a big fan of following regulation for regulation's sake. I think that the regulation needs to make sense. And so if the regulation makes sense, when what I mean by that is it makes sense from a biology and engineering perspective, which the due diligence will help us, you know, will tell us. If it makes sense, then by all means, we should continue to follow it. But if it doesn't make sense, 
and we follow it anyway? Is that a problem with the system or is that a problem with us? And I take no pleasure in saying this, John, but every single day, just about, I see companies doing things that are required that to me make absolutely no sense. And they never even stop and ask the question, does it make sense? So, you know, to use another cliche, those who forget their history are doomed to repeat it. By not doing your regulatory or your quality due diligence and by not doing it properly, because a lot of people do it, but in my opinion, not everybody does it properly. That's one of the reasons why we're having this discussion today. That helps prevent those those problems from happening over and over again in the in the future. Yeah, well said. That's that's how I would tie it up. Yeah, well said. Uh, and uh, uh, we'll let that be the the final word uh, on this particular topic, um, folks. Uh, thank you so much for for being loyal listeners of the Global Medical Device Podcast. And, and of course, if this is your first time, welcome. Uh, we have uh, well over a hundred episodes for you to catch up on. Um, Mike and I hear stories from folks all the time who. Uh, about folks that are, you know, they put their earbuds in and they go on walks and they listen to him and I and, and other guests on the Global Medical Device Podcast uh, uh, chat about um, important topics for our industry. So, so thank you for doing so. Be, be sure to spread the word. Keep the Global Medical Device Podcast as the number one podcast in the medical device industry. And we talked a little bit about quality due diligence today. Uh, certainly, if if uh, you're interested in learning about true quality and how to make this uh, integral part of your business and your culture, and you're ready to move beyond just checking boxes to be compliant, well, you know we've got you covered and we're here to help. So be sure to go to www.greenlight.guru to learn more about the only medical device quality management system on the market today, designed specifically for you as medical device professionals, and it's been designed. My actual medical device professionals, people who have been in your shoes, in your positions, who know what this is all about. So check it out. Again, www.greenlight.guru to learn more. As always, thank you. And this is your host, founder, VP of Quality and Regulatory at Greenlight Guru, John Spear. And you have been listening to the Global Medical Device Podcast.